We've begun a sermon series in uh, the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we're in Luke chapter 13, and we begin at the 10th verse. Um, at some, some point I'll write more about this, but we're thinking about these as a master class from the master. How then should we live? What does the master of living have to say about how we should live? This morning, Luke 13 beginning at verse 10. This was a great week, by the way. I have never seen this text before. Never preached on it, didn't remember it. Was like, what? <laughs> so it made for, for me an absolute, because there was nothing to fall back on. Oh yeah, I remember this text. It was all brand new to me. I hope it's brand new to you. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. Listen then for the voice of God. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her and called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leaders said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath, Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead them out to get it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. The word of the Lord. Uh, down the block and around the corner, there was a haunted castle. At least it looked like that to the kids in our neighborhood. Two stories of brick and stone with a slate roof and oddly shaped windows covered with security bars. It was a dramatic, stately home. But years of neglect had taken their toll. Overgrown evergreens leaned into the house. The windows were curtained, the lawn raggedy, the paint peeling, and you had to bushwhack your way to the door. There was nothing warm and welcoming. It felt dark and foreboding. An old couple, small of stature and reclusive, lived in this castle. And the woman was bent over. Not crooked or stooped, 
I mean bent at the waist at 90 degrees. Every once in a while, you'd see her walking in the yard, her eyes on her feet, her arms tucked back to keep from dangling, her gait slow and unsteady. In order for her to see you, you had, she had to crane her neck and lift her head and look out over the top of her eyes. She couldn't sustain that position for longer than a sentence or two. And she'd drop her head below her shoulders. Downcast would come to mind. This morning's text brings her to mind. Jesus was teaching in a Galilean synagogue on the Sabbath. Chances are the space was small and mostly stone, with men on benches on one side and women and children on the other. A literal reading of the text, of the Greek in this text, is that one of those women was bent over and not able to lift herself to the full. And you can get scholarly speculation about what caused this infirmary. For example, a severe forward flexion of her spine as occurs with orthopedic conditions such as ankylosing spondylitis. I practice that word all week. <laughs> the challenges to her well-being that, that could result from this debilitating condition were neck and back pain, fatigue, difficulty breathing, heart problems related to an inflammation of the aorta, and potentially feelings of frustration, vulnerability, or isolation. Sounds horrible. Culturally, there was also the suspicion that her condition was the result of some spirit or some sin. No less than Jesus says that Satan kept her bound for 18 long years. Therefore, her condition wasn't just physically challenging with sitting, eating, drinking, walking, and getting dressed a daily struggle, but it also is easy to imagine that it was a harsh, lonely existence. However, in our story, she doesn't ask for anything. She doesn't come to Jesus for healing. She doesn't do anything to draw attention to herself. The text simply says that Jesus saw her. Reverend Tony Van Zanten uh, used to tell of dropping off his children at a new school. I heard this so many times in so many sermons. 
he used to tell of dropping off his children at a new school. As the only white kids in the school, his daughter was greeted by classmates calling her name. But when Tony pulled away, in the rearview mirror, he saw his son alone, his little hands desperately clinging to the chain link fence, looking out, his back to the playground, and in Tony's telling, he's the only one who saw his son. He's the only one who saw his loneliness and fear. Love sees what others don't. Love sees what others don't. That's the end of the story. Tony still drives away. <laughs> he doesn't turn around, respond, or help. In our text, Jesus sees the woman and calls her forward, healing her with a word and a touch. He sees her, and then the initiative, the grace, the mercy, the healing is his. And she stands up straight. For the first time in 18 years, she can lift herself to the full she can roll her shoulders back, hold her head high, and look you in the eye. Thanks be to God. Makes you want to throw your hands up in astonishment and victory. But from the other side of the room, the man in charge clears his throat. <clears> throat> and calls the synagogue back to order. He knows his catechism and his confessions. He knows that all things are to be done according to scripture. He knows his religion inside and out, and this is out. There's a time and a place for everything, and this is neither the time nor the place. Therefore, there are six days for this sort of thing. But this day, the Sabbath, is for God. And you know the response. Jesus says something akin to the Sabbath being made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath, and that even animals are led to water. Religious rules are meant for human flourishing, for healing, for reconciliation, for restoration. And so look, therefore, it's easy to cast the elder of the synagogue as the bad guy, as the one picking nits and keeping order. It's easy to paint him as the villain. We can imagine him saying, look, if we let this slide, who knows what else will happen? Who knows who else he'll let in? There have to be rules. There have to be boundaries. But let's be clear. 
This is not an anti-Jewish law story. This is not an anti-Jewish law story. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. They were all Jews in a synagogue following Jewish law and tradition. Neither is it an anti-Sabbath-keeping story. Central to a biblical understanding of creation and the ordering of human life is Sabbath. Six days for work and the seventh day for rest. In the creation account, God rests. God takes a day off. And during Egyptian captivity, the Sabbath becomes an essential part of Israel's identity. There were no days off for slaves. And so Israel's insistence on a Sabbath is actually a declaration of independence from Pharaoh and all Pharaoh represents. Our value and identity are not in our work. Our value and identity are not in our work. And as busy, driven, thoroughly modern consumers, capitalists, achievers, and builders, as busy, driven, thoroughly modern consumers, capitalists, achievers, and builders, we would be wise to heed the ordering of life with Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. And they all said, Amen. Dear friends, the issue in our text is not how to keep Sabbath. The issue is that this fine, faithful fellow missed the point. In the name of God's law, he missed God's love. Listen to John Buchanan's take. Uh, John Buchanan used to be at Fourth Press downtown. John Buchanan. The whole law is an expression of holy love. It's a gift. It's for the purpose of keeping the health and vitality of the community. It's restrictions. It's no's. Not it's no's. It's no's. Are to keep the bonds of community strong and the individuals in it healthy. The law always points to God and the mysterious reality of God's love. And here it is employed in this story to resist and prohibit the expression of that love. It's not an easy lesson for us to learn, however. Religion, with its paraphernalia, its customs and traditions and rituals and liturgies, its hymns and its sacred writings and creeds, becomes an end in itself, the maintenance and protection of which becomes so important that people forget the original intent and incredibly act in ways that deny the original beauty and purity. And that's just, so that's, this is me. That's to say that our efforts at religious practice, while good, helpful, and right, 
are not big enough containers for the love of God. There will always be some mercy, some grace, some hesed that seeps out, that overflows, that can't be contained. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus pushes beyond the boundaries to welcome, heal, and restore the outsider, the vulnerable, the sinner. Not by rule, but by grace. Not by law, but by love. So Frederick Beekner died on Monday. 96, I know, I didn't know he was still alive. Uh, 96 years old, lived in Vermont. He was, for me, a spiritual mentor. At times, his writings kept me tethered to faith and to the church. And although an ordained Presbyterian, Beekner, an ordained Presbyterian, and for a time a chaplain, the last job he held was as a chaplain of an all-boys school. It turns out that he didn't regularly go to church because, and I quote, most often when I go, I'm bored out of my wits. In fact, he said of the congregations he visited, and this is a quote from Beekner, the best thing that could happen to your church is for it to burn to the ground and for your fax and email machines to be burned up and for your minister to be run over by a truck. <laughs> if it was a truck, I wouldn't be here. I'm a small car. <laughs> and for your minister to be run over by a truck so that you have nothing left except each other and God. And then I say, if you want to know what the original church was like, go to an AA meeting. Now that seems a bit of an overstatement. Jesus isn't burning it to the ground. He's not dis dismantling the rights, roles, and rules of, a fa of faith communities. He's not tearing down the law. He's fulfilling the law. Because look, it seems to me, and to my friend Mark, that the trajectory of Scripture is primarily outward, expansive, and inclusive. It reaches out, and it pulls in. And the Bible is full of voices struggling with what this means and how we live it out. But the movement is beyond the boundaries, beyond the barriers beyond the borders. We thrive, we are more fully human when we live by God's ordering of life. 
But the love of God, God's love, is always bigger than the container. J.B. Phillips, in the early 1960s, in Your God is Too Small, puts it this way. The trouble with many people today is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. While their experience of life grows in a score of directions and their mental horizons have been expanded to the point of bewilderment by world events and and scientific discoveries, their ideas of God have remained largely static. This is in 1961. Jesus wants the elder and the congregation gathered in the synagogue to know that God won't be contained by their frameworks. Thanks be to God. Look, I'm glad that Scripture recognizes how debilitating lower back pain can be. You're a rousing amen. (laughs) And I don't mean to minimize the miracle of the woman's healing in our text, but it also seems instructive that this physical pain is linked to some spiritual pain, to something that kept her downcast, and probably to a corresponding emotional or relational burden. Therefore, it seems worth emphasizing that her healing was more than just physical. Her spirit went from downcast to standing straight and praising God. And it's relatively easy to see someone in physical pain. There's a limp, a bend, a slower labored movement. It's harder to see those in emotional or spiritual pain. But the pain is no less difficult, no less debilitating. And the healing process can take longer than fixing a back or mending a bone. But the beginning place of healing is the same. Sabbath or not, the beginning place is welcoming, inclusion, and the love of a God who's not constrained by the boundaries that we create, no matter how sophisticated or sublime. The beginning place is a love so boundless that it entered into human suffering and death and stood up straight in resurrection. When Jesus touched the woman who had been bent over for 18 years, she stood up straight, looked Jesus in the face, and praised God. And all the people joined in. May we do the same. Amen.